0: We decided not to go to the regular vacation where you go to Puerto Vallarta and sit on the sand and take in the sun. We looked for something adventurous.
1: This is Centerpiece NY with Paul Finnegan, your presenter and producer. Centerpiece NY is a podcast that traces the lives of long-standing members of the Irish community in New York, many of whom we have come to know through a place called the New York Irish Centre in Queens. For this episode, our centrepiece is John McGurran from County Cavan, who came to New York in 1955, a Hibernian and a Cosmopolitan. 2020 has been a year for the ages here in the states, not just for lockdowns, but also for opposing political ideologies, with worsening division among communities all across this great nation. And the point where the pandemic and ideology clash the hardest? Face masks. So what does John McGurran think, as he closes in on the end of his 70s, but remains in fine fettle.
0: The little situation got me more upset in the pandemic because I was very careful where I went and who I went out with and protect myself by wearing a mask all the time. Needless
1: to say, John kept his mask on throughout our chat in his apartment, which will explain the occasional muffled syllable or two. (whistles) Let's kick off with the usual high-level summary of our centerpiece's life in New York. John arrived in New York on a boat at the tender age of 12, in the company of his entire family, five in all, which is a bit of a counterexample to our usual picture of an Irish immigrant, that young, independent adult. John came with his father, also named John, his mother, Maggie, his older sister, Margaret, and his younger sister, Kathleen. Let's have John take it from here.
0: Well, I came in 1955, February twenty six to be exact, I remember my aunt had me registered in school. I arrived on a Saturday. My aunt had me register in St. Teresa's in Woodside on uh, Monday. I just remember that the the first summer, it was very hot, and my family, we were all thinking about going back to Ireland. It was so hot, we couldn't take the heat. We weren't used to it. I went to Rice High School up in Harlem for four years. Then I went to uh, Iona College. From 61 to 65, I uh, got a bachelor's degree in Spanish and and education. I worked for a a clothing company for a while, and then I took a test for the New York City Department of Human Resources Administration, and I started as a caseworker in the Department of Welfare. I did that for a number of years, and I started taking the tests for promotional tests, you know, to uh, better myself. I worked all different kinds of stuff. After about maybe 10 years, I got the chance to go to graduate school and get a a master's degree in social work. I was able to get into a program, a a one-year residency program, rather than have to do the the regular two years. My placement was in the senior center, which which I absolutely loved. It It was close by, and I loved working with seniors. I did that for approximately eight years. And then when I finished the eight years, I went back into home care again. I had worked in home care. For example, if somebody was getting out of the hospital, it was uh, my job to decide how many hours of service they needed in order for them to safely stay at home. I did that for maybe 10, 10, or 12 years.
1: Ireland is perhaps the only country in the world with a smaller population than it had in the middle of the 19th century, significantly smaller. It is well known the Great Hunger triggered a mass exodus of its people from our shores. But it has been the stories that make it back to Ireland. The recountings of those like John, who fearlessly went out into an ever-expanding world, that continue to fuel this outward flow, at least in part. Firing the imagination of generations of Irish youth as they lie dreaming of faraway places.
0: I've been all over the world. I've been to... uh Uh, Let's see. I've been to Singapore, Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia. I've been to Tahiti. I've been to Fiji. I've been to Hong Kong. I've also traveled extensively in Europe. I was in Scotland and I was in Wales. I was in Spain. I was in Germany. I was in Austria. I was in Portugal.
1: It would have been easier for John to simply mention where he hasn't been, for as we'll see, he left off a slew of places from his list.
0: And how did it come to pass that he could travel so much? After a number of years, I got a lot of vacation. I got like five weeks a year of vacation. So my friend and I, he worked with me. We decided we were going to take a vacation. Every year we'd we'd go someplace different. For John, a bachelor, and an eligible one he'll have you know, there
1: was plenty of work to do in New York. But he knew there was also plenty of play to be had when he could get away from the Big Apple. And so the adventures began.
0: We decided not to go to the regular vacation where you go to Puerto Vallarta and sit on the sand and take in the sun. We looked for something adventurous. So we went to National Geographic magazine and we found they had a program where you could go to Punta Tombo in the south of Argentina and Patagonia and tag penguins. We signed up for that. It was was about 17 or 18 people who were involved in this project. And what we had to do was we had to catch penguins and tag them. We were doing a study on populations of of penguins coming in there. I believe there's over a million. And also the migration habits of the penguins. It was roughing it because you slept on the ground. It was hot during the day, and it was down to freezing at night. Maybe you had electricity two hours a day. Uh, You didn't have any hot water. All the men had a beard. After we did that, we went out to the right whales, who were also in Punta Norte, which is another part of Argentina. We went out in a boat, the whales were there, and one of the whales actually came underneath the boat. It It was a very big whale. the gentleman driving the boat said the important thing is you do not come between the mother and baby whale, because if you do we're, we're going to be in big trouble. The last week we went to Buenos Aires, which is a beautiful city and we stayed at the Plaza Hotel which is probably one of the top hotels in the world. We, we looked like ragamuffins with we beards and we <laughs> Coming from the wilderness, it was a great adventure. A couple of years later, we decided we would go up the Amazon River. We flew to Iquitos in Peru. Iquitos is a little town on the edge of the Amazon. The only way you can leave it is by boat or by plane. There are no roads. Leave this this, this city. So we got on the boat. We were each given a fishing rod, and we said we want you to try and and uh, catch a an, uh, piranha. P- piranha in Spanish. P- piranha in English. <laughs> Actually, I was the only one who caught a piranha. They're, they're about an inch and a half long, but they're ferocious. So I have a picture of myself with a, with a piranha. We also went swimming in the Amazon, which could be dangerous, you know, if you're bleeding or anything like that, because the, the piranhas, they, they smell the blood. One of the other things we did, after dark, we took a boat, and we went out capture caimans, baby caymans the alligator of south america it's 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 a much smaller version of the alligator they're they're long and they're and they're skinny but they could bite you <laughs> just as bad as an alligator they're they're very well known up in that region the amazon region the indians have to be you know, very careful that they don't get bitten it's just as dangerous as an alligator My friend and i he he got a new car so we traveled across the united states uh, to some of the rural areas and it reminded me of ireland back in the day there was sheep in the roadway and you had to stop for the sheep to go and and the cattle and all that stuff in like wyoming and, and some of these other rural areas we ended up in ensenada in mexico los federales the federal police came over they looked at the plate it was a new york plate and they they thought we were smuggling drugs so they started putting the car up and down to see if any drugs would fall out but Finally, after a while, they realized that we didn't have any drugs, and they let us go. I went to Russia. In fact, I was one of the first outsiders to, to be able to go to some of the cities, like the Nizhny Novgorod, which is an industrial city. You weren't allowed to go there. Only the Russian people could go there. So I was one of the first people, we, we, our group was one of the first people, who was able to go to these cities and see what was going on. From Hong Kong, we took a hydrofoil out to Macau, which is a big gambling area. When we got to Macau, you couldn't even get near the table. They love to gamble, so I never got a chance to uh, make a bet. Off Portugal, there's an island called Madeira, which is known for its wine. We were supposed to be back at work. I got stuck in Madeira because the winds came up and the planes couldn't land or take off. So I had to spend an extra week, and I was supposed to be back at work. I had to call up and say, you know, I'm not gonna, I, can't, I can't get off this island. When I went to Spain, went across to Morocco. The only time I've been to Africa yet, but it was interesting. We met a family from Argentina. In fact, the woman was a teacher from Argentina, but her parents were Irish. Her name was Elena McConnell, and she had a beautiful daughter, blonde-haired girl, about 16, 17 years old. So anyhow, we went to the kasbah in Morocco. This guy came up, and he looked at her, and he goes, I'll give you 50 camels for her. We all left, to we didn't know whether he was serious or not.
1: We <laughs> wouldn't know what to do with the camels anyway. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that, that's true.
1: In time, John's love of travel outlasted that of his friend, and, as often is the case for travellers, the coup de grace was delivered by the paw of a pet, or several pets in this case.
0: It's much easier to travel with somebody else, with those two people. It's cheaper. What happened was my friend got four or five cats, and he decided he, he didn't want to leave the cats for any period of time. So we uh, curtailed those trips.
1: However, a coronavirus R two notwithstanding, John still has the travel bug.
0: I go regularly on cruises. Johnny Madden's cruise and Gertrude Burns' cruise. I go on both of them. It's, that's like a, a week. Goes to different places. Uh, I'm retired now, so I, I might as well take advantage of
1: the time I have left. Something tells me John has always made the most of the time he has left. But we are forgetting one big journey that John took. The one that led to all the others.
0: The insistence of an aunt here who lived in Woodside. She said, why don't you come over? Things are much better here. So we decided we'd go. We left Cavern at 3.30 in the morning. We hired a taxi and we went to Cove. And we got on a boat to Saxonia to come to New York. It took us seven days to, uh, to come to New York. It was my sister Kathleen, my, my sister Margaret and myself, and my father and my mother.
1: When his aunt said, things are much better here... What exactly was she comparing them to?
0: Towns were pretty tough back in the 50s. We lived on a small farm. We had a a couple of cows and a horse. It was very difficult to make ends meet, you know. We lived in a mud wall house and no electricity, no bathroom. We were down to the river to get water, walked two and a half miles to school, two and a half miles home every day, my two sisters and myself. I I come from the townland of Kinnahabeg in Beltrebro County Cabin. There's only two families who live there. There was us and there was another gentleman, who we later found out was making i Had been doing it for years and we didn't even know about it. If you didn't know, puchine is a Gaelic, an
1: Irish word for moonshine. Distilling puchine is a centuries old and widespread but covert craft, especially in rural Ireland. <coughs> For young John, tough times, tougher than he could have foreseen, lay ahead.
0: We arrived in February. Unfortunately, by June, my mother passed away. She had cancer. In fact, she had cancer before she left, but they didn't diagnose it. I had just reached 13. I had a younger sister, three years younger than me, and a sister three years older than me. That was tough. I was in school, and they called me out of class, and you know, they broke it to me and made the announcement that my mother passed away. That was a tough blow, you know, especially for my father, who was responsible for us. He was working and, and, and trying to take care of us. We, 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 uh, we survived.
1: In another cruel twist of fate, more burdens were to fall upon the shoulders of John's father, burdens that needed to be shared with young John, too.
0: My younger sister, she was very smart. She had like a 99 average. She won three or four different scholarships, which was approximately 18 she developed MS, multiple sclerosis. My father and I had to take care of her, which was not easy. It was just the two of us because my sister had married a guy from Cavan and moved back to Ireland. That would be John's older sister, Margaret. So there was just my father and myself to take care of my sister, who was basically wheelchair bound. Usually, with that disease, you don't, you, know, you don't get it so early. The 18 is very young to get the, the disease, but it's a very debilitating disease. I was able to go to school, and my father was working, so we took like turns. After a number of years, we decided we would send my sister, the, the sick sister, back to Ireland. We put her in St Phelan's in Cavan Town. They called it a hospital, but it was actually like a nursing home. There was a lot of older people there who were, you know, there permanently. So we put her in there, and uh, she, she, she didn't, she didn't get any better, but but she she didn't get much worse either, but. She, she passed away when she was 46 years old.
1: His sister's terrible illness, however, allowed John to avoid the one journey he did not want to make.
0: When I got out of college in 1965, about uh, three or four months later, I got drafted into the U.S. Army. I did my basic training um, uh Fort Jackson, South Carolina, and then I went to military police school in Fort Gordon, Georgia. My father wrote a letter to me. Says, "Why, why don't you try a hardship discharge? Because uh, you know I'm here all by myself trying to get together." So I got all the letters together. We had it from the priest and the military police school. Gave me a hardship discharge, which which I didn't have to go to Vietnam.
1: Good fathers, let's pay tribute to the many that carry their role with grace, that shield and protect their loved ones from the world and from the weight of that responsibility, making it seem invisible even when it's at its heaviest. Among them, good immigrant fathers, who are often more alone than most, are special. Through all those early difficult years in New York, John had at least one thing going for him, his father.
0: My father had a very difficult time with both his wife passing away and his daughter getting sick. He he worked on Park Avenue, maintenance man in the building. He he decided he would, after he retired, he would go back to Ireland to live. he liked it over there, he loved to pay 25 and he used to participate in turkeys and stuff like that, you know, at the Christmas time, and he passed away when he was 77 years old. My father was a very intelligent man, He went, but he only went to the third grade because the family needed him to work on the, on the, on the farm, so he wasn't able to go to school. But he, I mean, he, ha- he had common sense and he and he was very smart. Yeah, my father, I- I'd say my father was probably a saint, you know, like, the, for, for, for all the things that he had to go through and he, and, and he never gave up hope and he never, you know, showed us any, uh, you know, that, that, that he, you know, he, he was always very good with us and, and did the best he could and, and in fact, Uh, I told my sister, when when I pass away, I want to be buried with him. He was a great father.
1: And as is central to many Irish of his generation, John has always had his relationship with his heavenly father to reach for too.
0: I never abandoned my faith. I brought it with me and I never gave it up. When times get tough, that's what I turn to. I ask God to help me make a decision. I find that that's my best help.
1: And he is no stranger to his local church, St. Joan of Arc, in Jackson Heights.
0: It's on 82nd Street and 35th Avenue. It's a big, big church. A big Hispanic area. The Spanish masses are completely full. The numbers have gone down at the uh, English-speaking masses. I have noticed over the years that it's sparser than it used to be. I guess some people have died, but I, I don't know, maybe they don't go to mass anymore. What I do is I usually make my announcements in, in both languages because some of the people are Spanish-speaking.
1: And turning again to the biggest story of 2020, and maybe the biggest story for years to come, the virus. How has John been holding up?
0: My life really hasn't changed. You know, I like to read. I like to watch TV, I go on YouTube. I'm a big soccer fan. I watch soccer on there, I watch Irish music on there. YouTube is, is fantastic. They have so much stuff on there and they play one thing after another. You don't even have to uh, program it. But I couldn't go out like I used to. What I miss most is I used to go dancing at the Kerry Hall every third Saturday. We haven't been able to do that. I used to look forward to that. It's good exercise and I have many friends that I haven't seen in, in months, so you know, I miss that. But otherwise, I mean, I'm not depressed or anything like that. I'm doing good. I still stay active in my church and help my friends, you know, when they need a ride or something like that. Wait, did John
1: mention something there about dancing?
0: One day they had a concert in the park. It was Irish music and dancing, and I went to it. I said, you know, I've always loved Irish music. So I said, "I, I, I I could do that dancing. So anyhow, I took some lessons. I got so good at it that I could do it with my eyes closed. And then I decided that I was going to teach it. So for approximately 10 years, I taught in Richmond Hill. I taught in the Down in Sunnyside. I taught in College Point. And I really got a lot of enjoyment out of that. To this day, I have maybe uh, 100 CDs of just Irish music. Even today, like, I go in the afternoon and I listen to Irish music. I really love the Irish music.
1: John goes for the more social Irish dancing, with large gatherings, dancing together, often into the wee small hours. On these occasions, there are two types of group dance. Cayley dancing, with its deeper and more ancient roots in Gaelic culture, and Irish set dancing. Dances that are heavily influenced by courting dances that came from other European countries into Ireland in more recent centuries. Let's have the expert take it from here
0: two hand dances, there's four hand dances, and there's six hand dances. This is strictly Kayleigh. The 16 hand reel, of course, you have eight couples. There's jigs, reels, hornpipes, and polkas. The polkas are done around Kerry and Cork. There'll be polka fans on there. Around Clare, uh, Galway, it's, it's real sets. Many different dances, and what happened was, early on, it was just Kayleigh dancing. Most of that music was brought back from the soldiers who were over in the continent and they brought back some of the dances with them, the quadrilles and stuff like that from from Europe. The Kelly dancing was going good. We used to go every week, Kelly dancing up in Westchester County. The set dancing started to take over. Each county had its own dances. Claire would have the Caledonian. Galway would have their own sets. Kelly dancing was you, your feet came up in the air, you kick your feet up in the back. The, the set dancing is very close to the ground and you, and you beat out the beat, you know. You come down on your foot and you, you beat out the music. Set dancing, you keep your feet very close to the ground. Most of it is like four couples, eight people. Half of it is timing. People want to get into it, they, they never look back. Early on, I joined Cultus Kiltori Aaron.
1: Did you catch that? John mentioned something called Cultus Kultori Aaron. That's that Gaelic language again, which the Irish call the Irish language, by the way. Cultus Ceoltóirí Aran means Gathering of Musicians of Ireland and is an international organisation dedicated to the preservation and promotion of Irish traditional music. And if you find Cultus Ceoltóirí Aran hard to pronounce, you'll definitely find it hard to spell should you try to look it up. In Ireland, sadly... Most Irish don't speak Irish, or speak it well. Yet Irish is everywhere there, an unseen hand, shaping the unique way the Irish think. It shows itself in the style English is spoken, and every so often, a couple of Irish words will pop up in conversation, as if it were the voice of the fairies coming through, reminding the Irish people who they really are and where they come from. But I'm after interrupting John in his talk of the cultus. Let's return to him now.
0: I was chairman of the Lord Clancy branch when Queens here used to run a Kelly. Uh, once a month, I did that for 15 years. Down at the Cork Lounge at the Tower View Ballroom, St Mary's Church over in Maspeth. I wrote a newsletter, telling them you know what was going on, and I used to hire the musicians for the Kelly. And once a year, they had a convention, cultus convention. The hierarchy and all the delegates, we'd all meet in different places from Montreal to Boston to Chicago. We kept kept the tradition alive, as you say.
1: Make no mistake, this Irish dancing is a contact sport.
0: I had an operation on my right knee because I danced so much. And years ago, we, we used to dance on hard floors, which is very hard on your knee because you're coming down on your knee, you're beating at the beat on your knee. It's like a shock absorber and after a while, I tore my meniscus. I had an operation. I was fine afterwards. After about three months, I went to the gym and just worked out and got back into shape. And um, maybe about two, three years ago, I tore the meniscus in my left knee. So that kind of slowed me down a little bit. I would still do some set dancing, but I wouldn't do like I used to. I used to go away to Gertie Burns weekend, and I would dance for eight hours in one day. I was really in good shape, you know, doing all that dancing, you know, so.
1: For decades, John has lived in his apartment on Northern Boulevard in the heart of Jackson Heights in Queens.
0: I think it's a great neighbourhood. This is like the melting pot. If you go along the number seven line, you come to Woodside, there's all the Spanish restaurants, and you come out to here, it's like Asian. Elmhurst is a big Asian community, all different Asian countries. When I worked in the senior centre, It was like the United Nations. We had Indians, we had Pakistanis, we had uh, Filipinos, all different nationalities all over the place. And, of course, Hispanics, 75% Hispanic. You got Colombians, Ecuadorians, Mexicans. Plenty of practice my Spanish. I go to a restaurant, I I don't use any English. I order in Spanish.
1: New York City is a Democrat's town. But many think the party could be doing more for the people it purports to represent. The middle class and the poor, immigrants and minorities. Jackson Heights is a woke neighbourhood, so it is no surprise it is in the forefront of efforts to tug the Democratic Party further to the left.
0: Everybody knows their politician over here. We had Danny Drum. We had Jose Peralta, who unfortunately passed away. He he was good. He was up at Junction Bowl, a Nice guy. Den Decker. He's 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 leaving. Uh, the, his his term is up. He, he got defeated. It's very very active community. When they talked about stopping some of the buses, we had a big meeting. The, the people from the transit authority came. They, they got so much opposition. You can't do away with the 53 bus. That bus has been there. It's going to rock away forever. People stepped up and said, "You're not taking that away from me. We're going to fight it." They they didn't do anything with it. The 53 is still running to Rockaway.
1: Believe it or not, New York City has its share of beaches. Every borough has them, except Manhattan. Coney Island in Brooklyn might be the most famous, but Rockaway Beach in Queens is not far behind. It has a real beach subculture down there, and it took a hammering from Superstorm Sandy in 2012, the effects of which still linger. But it has come back. The Rockaways, as the area is often called, is the best chance of a day at the beach for many city dwellers during the brutally hot summer months in New York.
0: I have a special place in my heart for, for, for the 53 bus because when I lived in Woodside, I was 16 years of age. I used to take the 53 bus down to 116th Street in Rockaway, and there was a, a shape up job. Curly's Atlas Hotel would, would hire we worked seven hours and we got paid five dollars part of my job was i used to have this box with ice cream on it and i had to go out on the sand walk along the sand it was 90 degrees out and sell ice cream that was my job at curly's atlas hotel it was all wood right one day it completely burned down
1: The biggest sporting event each year in the Irish sports calendar is the All-Ireland Gaelic football final in Croke Park in Dublin. Gaelic football is huge among the people of Cavan. Though they don't have a strong team in recent years, Cavan has one claim to glory that no other Irish county has. In 1947, the final was played in New York, the only time it has ever been played outside Ireland, and Cavan won it. Still back in Ireland and not even 10 years old, John remembers the occasion well.
0: I actually listened to the game. We had a radio, which had to be hooked up to a battery. And the battery was this big, and we had to bring the battery in to get it charged. So we get it charged, and we would make sure we didn't use it too much so we could listen to the game on Sunday. Great treat, we thought. You know, Kevin playing in New York. First, first team that we found outside of Ireland. So, okay. I, they, they won. And they won, which which is which is even better. Mihal O'Hare was the uh, the broadcaster.
1: 45,000 people crowd New York's polo grounds. Fans playing, and thousands of enthusiastic Irish, Irish-Americans and Americans to greet the Cavan and Kerry teams as they walk onto the field. Nero Dwyer throws in the ball and the game is on. And Garvey, in one of his many solo runs, outpaced the defense. And how did it go for Cavan this year?
0: Cavan versus Dublin in Crow Park. The All-Ireland semi-final. Yeah, we're all, we're all going to see the game on Saturday. We're hoping for the best, but we're we're going to be up against
1: it. And up against it they were, with Dublin sweeping Cavan aside on its march to yet another All-Ireland final, their sixth in a row. But the people of Cavan seemed satisfied. They had beaten the odds to even reach the semi-final this year. And there's always next year.
0: If I had stayed in Ireland, I probably would have gone to the sixth grade, and that would be it. When I came to New York, I got opportunities that I would never have been able to take advantage of over there. It was it was the best thing ever happened to us, coming here.
1: Certainly, John is the kind of guy you couldn't stop giving back.
0: I'm an usher at St. Joan of Arc Church. I've been ushering for maybe 18 years. I've been an usher at the 12 o'clock Mass. I also help out with the uh, youth program. They have a basketball program. The youth program, they usually have it on Saturday. I volunteered for three years at Elmhurst Hospital. I was in the children's program. I used to go to the emergency room and interview patients, get histories and stuff like that. I did that for approximately three years. I worked at a, a Spanish center on Skillman Avenue. It's not there anymore for three years, helping Spanish-speaking people. Since I have a bachelor's degree, I, I got very good at Spanish, using it every day when I worked at the senior center, because like 80% of the people were Spanish-speaking. So. I got very good at it. I've run health fairs for the Spanish-speaking community. I've done a lot of volunteer work. I think Ireland has a lot to offer. I'm proud of everything, its music, its culture. If you go on YouTube and you listen to the Irish music, you have people from all these different countries that say how beautiful the music is, and it's true. I appreciate all the things that Ireland has done. Sending people all over the world to uh, help people in South America and all these different organizations, Irish organizations. Even the organization called Hope, they go to South America and they bring supplies to people who are, you know, of have nothing.
1: Let's return to Ireland again with the spirit of Christmas past.
0: We always went to Midnight Mass all of us we walked together into the church two and a half miles and when we'd come home we'd have a big breakfast remember putting the candle in the window i lived in a two-room house you know it was like we never really decorated much you know but we did we did put a candle in the window
1: Christmas and New Year's, the holidays, as we like to say in America, can be a hard time emotionally for many, and this year it might be even harder. Instances of suicide and self-harm tend to spike during this time. It is fitting that John's life of caring for others, professionally and voluntarily, did at one time intersect with this world of hurt.
0: I was called a crisis consultant. It was my responsibility to straighten out whatever emergency problem came up. A lot of the work was working with suicidal patients, people who were on drugs, who were reaching out, threatening to commit suicide, and it was my responsibility to get them into a program, basically. I had this sophisticated phone system where I could tune in six or seven different uh, parties. I worked with my supervisor. Somebody called in. We would look for a program where there was an opening, We would get in touch with that programme. So we felt we were doing good work and we we saved a lot of people's lives, which was very important. Hi, I'm Rebecca Sked and I'm the CEO of Solace House.
1: Solace House is an Irish organisation in New York dedicated to the prevention of suicide and self-harm with close ties to the New York Irish Centre in Queens. I wanted to wish you all a very Merry Christmas and to remind you that the holidays can be a particularly hard time of year. Please remember to take care of yourself, your loved ones, and to check in on your family and friends. And remember, there is always hope and there is always help. If you would like more information on the services that we provide, please call us on 718 482 0001 or check out our website www.SolaceHouseUSA.org Have a very Merry Christmas and a Happy and Healthy New Year. Thanks for listening to Centerpiece NY with Paul Finnegan, your presenter and producer. You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. Rest assured, no animals were harmed in the making of this podcast. Be sure to keep in touch on social media at Centerpiece NY. That's C E N T E R P I E C E N Y. You can also visit us at centerpieceny.com. Email us at centerpieceny at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Our interview with John McGarren was conducted in December 2020, exercising all social distancing and safety protocols, especially face masks. The New York Irish Centre would like me to mention that it is the grateful recipient of grants from Ireland's Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade and New York City's Department for the Aging, along with fantastic community support from listeners like you.